Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. This week on our first podcast of 2022, our schools are closed again, our small businesses are closed again, our gyms are closed again, and the Leafs, Senators, and Raptors are playing in front of empty stands again. We'll give you the Omicron update and other developments from the Pink Palace on this Tuesday, January 11th, 2022. So let's get to it. Hey, partner. Haven't spoken to you in a few weeks, so Happy New Year, and it's a good thing not too much happened while we were away, eh? Gosh, you know, I I do love these slow, quiet pandemic holidays. You know, absolutely (laughs) nothing newsworthy happens, and we all get to just forget about provincial politics and public health policy. (laughs) Yeah, not quite. Uh, As the great catcher, Yankee Yogi Berra used to say, it's deja vu all over again. JMM, we've been here before. It looks like we're here again. Let's start by getting on the record what it means for the province of Ontario to be back in stage two. So uh, indoor dining is closed for bars and restaurants again. Uh, Retailers are generally limited to 50% capacity. Uh, Gyms, pools, uh, numerous other public gathering places are closed altogether, including aquariums and zoos. Uh, Malls, which had been closed in previous waves, are open, but food courts are closed and uh, people aren't allowed to loiter. And I have some questions about how exactly that's going to be enforced. Um, And our listeners probably didn't miss the fact that Ontario schools have been closed once again. Uh, At the time of recording, the government's plan is for schools to reopen on January 17th. Let's hone in on that. What do we know about what went into the decision to close the schools? It was driven by the surge in hospitalizations due to the Omicron variant, uh, and it certainly seems to have uh, taken the government a bit by surprise, since uh, only, I think, two days before they announced the closure, uh, they had said that the return from the winter holiday would be postponed only by a few days. Uh, But the surge in Omicron hospitalizations is real, and it's dramatic. Uh, On Christmas Day in Ontario, there were about 500 people hospitalized with COVID. Uh, That number is now five times larger. Uh, So that is the the immediate reason for both the school closures and the return to uh, broader public health restrictions. The other thing that's going on now is really uh, just massive disruptions in workforces, uh, both in schools, in hospitals, uh, more or less everywhere in both the private and public sectors. Uh, You know, there's a lot we could say about that, but on the school front, uh, the important bit is that uh, a lot of schools in this province, uh, their school boards weren't sure they'd actually be able to staff classes if they had reopened uh, because teachers were either sick or isolating because they'd been uh, a close contact of a COVID case. Well, let's check some of the numbers here. 90%, 90% of high school students are vaccinated. Has there been any word on whether they might be allowed to return sooner than the original date of January 17th, given their high rate of vaccination? 
The Toronto Star has reported that high schoolers may return before elementary and middle schoolers, but uh, at least so far, that looks like it might mean that uh, high schools reopen on January 17th while younger kids stay home a bit longer. Uh, two points to consider here. Uh, first is that Ontario is officially sticking to the NACI guidelines to space out uh, the first two doses for young kids by about eight weeks, uh, and it has actually only been uh, a bit more than six weeks since vaccinations of 5 to 11 year olds began in late November. The other issue is that we have not seen a huge take up in kids vaccines so far. Um, it has actually slowed way down for first doses and we are still at less than half of kids in that age range with their first dose. So elementary schools are not nearly as well protected as high schools are, at least as far as vaccinated students goes. Uh, and, you know, that obviously complicates the question of uh, when they reopen. Sure. Okay, let me follow up on this modeling that the public health officials have used to convince the premier to shut things down again. And I, incidentally, I, 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 I kind of like the expression the premier used when he said it took me about 30 seconds and it was a decisive decision. <laughs> I'm not sure what other kind of decisions there are other than decisive ones, but I guess reluctant ones. But anyway, it was a Funny turn of phrase. But the premier has often said in the past that the, the modeling that he has shown by public health officials, that that modeling has been so apocalyptic that he really had no choice but to batten down the hatches. So the question then becomes the accuracy of the modeling numbers that he has seen before and that he saw this time in order to make his decision. How accurate have the modeling numbers been? So uh, there's no question that it has been um, variable, let's say, uh, over the last year. Uh, I think, you know, the, the Ontario COVID science table and specifically the, the modeling experts within the science table uh, have, uh, you know, we can acknowledge that they have a, a difficult job to do in a, in a pandemic where circumstances change all the time. Um, but we've seen different results, right? The spring waves that uh, we saw were predicted by the modeling table, and we all remember how it turned out when the government treated those projections as something that they could sort of sit back and wait and see on. Uh, since the summer, the arrival of Delta and now Omicron has made the modeling more difficult. Uh, we know the projections of a major fall surge uh, that, you know, helped motivate the government to bring in vaccine passports, that fall surge, uh, I don't want to say it never materialized, but it certainly didn't materialize as predicted. Um, and while the science table modeled a substantial increase in ICU capacity that has started to materialize in the province's hospitals, uh, Omicron keeps surprising us, right? The surge that uh, prompted the latest uh, lockdown wasn't ICU admissions uh, initially. It was just uh, the surge in raw hospitalizations, right? We're in this different phase of the pandemic where we're not as worried about people in intensive care. It's just the sheer volume of people coming into hospitals. I'd actually like to see some numbers somewhere down the road, and I, I, I don't... I don't suspect they have them yet, but I wonder what percentage of people who show up to hospitals thinking they might have COVID and need treatment are genuinely cases that require hospitalization or somebody in a hospital setting, which of course is the most expensive and difficult place to get service. I wonder what that'll turn out to be. That's, I guess that's just sort of a... Um, an out loud note to myself to look into this somewhere down the road. <laughs> well, I, I do know that the province, you know, they are trying to refine their COVID data on hospitalizations. Uh, you know, there are questions about, you know, uh, people who get hospitalized uh, for COVID versus people who get uh, admitted to a hospital and then 
sort of incidentally test positive for COVID while they're there. I don't think, you know, there are a lot of people who are, um, I think, making more of that distinction than uh, it really means at this point. Uh, It was a really interesting question, I think, three weeks ago. Right now, I I just don't think it matters as much. Hmm. Well, let's check out one group that certainly feels that it is bearing a disproportionate share of the load as it relates to COVID-19 shutdowns and that small business. Now, we well remember in previous shutdowns, previous waves, there were government programs in place to help those who are trying to keep their head above water by running a small business. What's happening on that front this time? Uh, So the government has so far announced uh, two different uh, uh, forms of assistance, I guess you could say. The first is uh, $10,000 grants. These are primarily for uh, small businesses that are really like all the way closed because of these public health measures. Um, they are not generally available to retailers who have to go to half capacity, uh, except for uh, bars and restaurants where indoor dining has been uh, prohibited. They are also eligible for these grants. And the idea is to uh, help these businesses pay the costs that you know they can't just stop paying their rent, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, The other uh, big form of assistance uh, that was you know, probably going to cost the government quite a bit uh, in the final analysis is hydro subsidies. Uh, This is going to both small businesses, uh, farms, and uh, just uh, households uh, who will now uh, get to pay the cheaper off-peak rate for hydro. Uh, and I think I could say with some confidence that if the current public health measures are extended past the 17th, that the uh, hydro subsidy will also be extended. Okay, let's talk testing. We have heard stories about shortages of rapid tests, about not going for a test if you've got symptoms, just basically assume that you've got it and stay home. Where are we on testing in Ontario right now? Uh, so there, are, we're going to talk about two basic forms of testing. There is the the PCR lab testing that we have relied on really, uh, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, to to confirm cases in the provincial statistics. Uh, and then there's rapid testing, which rapid tests have been around for a while. We haven't made uh, huge use of them uh, here in Ontario. Um, the PCR testing has, <laughs> there's no other way to put it. It's, it's, it's largely collapsed because there are simply too many cases out there to catch them all. So uh, the government has really, really narrowed who is eligible for PCR testing and um basically people like you or I or our listeners, unless our listeners include doctors and, and you know, people working in long-term care, which I, I'm sure we have some, uh, generally speaking, the public is ineligible for PCR testing. Um, even so, having narrowed the testing so far, uh, we are still seeing positivity rates of about 30%. Uh, that is to say, three in 10 tests are uh, coming up positive, uh, vastly higher than it has ever been uh, in the pandemic. Uh, so, you know, this situation is how you end up with announcements uh, like the end of tracking school COVID cases, right? Uh, I know a lot of uh, parents of school-aged children were extremely upset by this announcement that basically the province is going to stop uh, tracking school COVID cases. But uh, I, I, <laughs> I don't even know if this is sort of charitable or, or what, but I'll just say like, we were not going to be able to track school cases because parents and, and, and students were not going to be able to get PCR tests. Um, and so that sort of forced the government's hands. Um, so instead, 
uh, and this is where we pivot to rapid tests, uh, instead of uh, PCR testing, the government is looking to make a, a much wider use of rapid antigen tests, uh, especially for high-risk settings like schools. Uh, if you lined up at an LCBO back in December to get some of those free tests, or if you had a kid in school in Ontario and got free tests sent home, those are the kinds of rapid tests we're talking about. Um, the province wants to start using them a lot more in schools, in long-term care, in hospitals, uh, and they are being helped uh, in this goal by the fact that the federal government, uh, they announced last week that they have procured uh, 140 million rapid tests, uh, which will be distributed to the provinces. Uh, Ontario, you know, as is our share of the population, will receive a bit less than half of those. Uh, the catch is that, uh, at least according to the provincial government uh, last week, uh, we don't have a a, a strict uh, delivery date for all of those tests. Uh, the large majority of those, we don't know when they will arrive, uh, though uh, certainly millions will be here by the end of January. I think the other catch on those is that you get anywhere from 10 to 20 percent of the results back. Uh, and if you get a negative, they're false negatives. And that really doesn't help. That was certainly the case in my own circumstances when I tested myself with a rapid test and it came back negative And I still felt miserable, so I went for a PCR test the next morning, and that one came back positive. And, um, you know, I, I must confess, I lost a bit of faith in the rapid antigen test at, at that point because of it. No, this, it's absolutely a matter that, uh, you know, the, certainly the public health professionals have been um, more let's say, skeptical, more nuanced in their views on rapid tests than uh, government officials. You know, the premier has been a big booster of rapid tests almost since the beginning. And uh, public health officials have said sort of, you know, whoa, 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 uh, pop the brakes a little bit. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, in fairness, I think if you do, if, if they're in the schools and students could do them, for example, you know, every other day, if you get that much volume going, uh, they are more accurate. But if you're expecting to take one out of the blue, um, your chances of getting a false negative are unfortunately a bit too high at the moment. Well, one of the other great debates happening these days is whether we should be as fixated on the positive test results as we seem to be, you know, they get announced every night on the news and so on, or rather, should we be more focused on whether those people who test positive end up in the hospital or in an intensive care unit? What's the latest thinking on that? So Omicron is... Uh much less virulent. Uh, it uh, is less likely to cause serious disease, uh, but it spreads much faster. Um, we also have the fact that, you know, a very, very large fraction of Ontario's population uh, has had uh, two doses and now even three doses. You know, people are reasonably asking, you know, is a, is a lockdown necessary for uh, a, a disease that, uh, you know, the, the large majority of Ontarians are extremely well protected from? Um, you know, and, and that is true for a lot of people, but, you know, the surge in hospitalizations, I think, really uh, speaks for itself. Uh, what is happening here, in short, is that while a, a smaller fraction of people are getting seriously ill than what we saw from uh, previous waves of COVID, uh, a, a much, much larger absolute number of people are getting infected in a short span of time, uh, which is what is putting stress on the hospital system. Even with the limited testing we are doing, about 1% of all Ontarians are testing positive for COVID-19 this week, uh, and that is certainly undercounting by 
probably several multiples. Uh, so the, the you know the hospital system just isn't built to handle this volume of patients, and uh, it, that's a whole discussion about you know long term healthcare spending that we could talk about another time. Uh, but but that's really what the root of the current crisis is. Uh, so you know if you're asking you know why is the government doing this? Why do we have uh, these new lockdown measures? When will we know that things have started to get better? Yes, you definitely want to focus on the hospitalization metrics over something like uh, the daily new case count, uh, you know, raw hospitalizations, and in particular, ICU admissions um, are, are probably the best uh, metric we have right now. Hmm. Yeah, a couple things on that. Because I'm a big Boston Red Sox fan, I read the Boston Globe um, most days. And I do note that Ontario and Massachusetts have similar numbers of positive test results every day. We're both up around 25,000 a day. And yet Massachusetts's population is half the size of Ontario's. So I always like to remind people, relatively speaking, we're still doing better than a lot of states, including a lot of blue states where there are a lot of people vaccinated, uh, similar to Ontario. Now, you've been tracking the case numbers since the very beginning. Given that testing is, as you indicated, so much more restricted now, is there any point in continuing to track all of those cases? I get a lot of people asking me this on Twitter. Why am I still putting out the daily case numbers when I will be the first to admit that, you know, as a, a, a standalone uh, indicator, the daily case count at the moment is kind of meaningless. Um but I'm going to do a little bit of a COVID 101 refresher here if I can, right? We look at a bunch of different indicators uh, for COVID, uh, but the big ones are the number of tests conducted, the number of new cases confirmed, the number of hospitalizations, the number of people in ICU, uh, as well, of course, as the number of deaths. Uh, and those all happen you know, pretty predictably in a specific order in time, right? You First, you conduct the tests, the tests confirm cases, the cases become hospitalizations, and the hospitalizations can become ICU admissions. And in over 10,000 uh, tragic cases in Ontario, those ICU admissions have become deaths. So to put this in the language of statistics, you know, what we have are leading and lagging indicators. So tests and new cases are our, our most leading indicators, and deaths is our, our most lagging indicator. And, you know, uh, as we've said a few times now, right, the number of new cases is kind of meaningless because we've maxed out our testing capacity. Um, and, and we're not even doing uh, a random sample of community surveillance. So you can't even sort of extrapolate meaningfully from from the, the daily test number, except to say that it's just a lot of COVID in Ontario right now. <laughs> yes, yes, it is a lot is one way of putting it. But okay, answer me this then. If the case numbers are so skewed, what other indicators can people look at to know whether or when we're actually coming out of this thing? The new cases and tests are still like the earliest indicator we have. So while you know, if you're asking me today, does that number mean anything? I would say no, but I keep looking at them every day to see if there's any kind of sensible change, right? I think that the first signs of any kind of recovery we get from the Omicron wave are going to start probably in the test positivity numbers, right? When when we're still testing, you know, close to 100,000 people a day, but instead of getting 30% positivity, it's, you know, south of 20 and, you know, hopefully, you know, get south of 15 and then lower. Um, that would be one of the early signs I would look for. And then after that, you would expect to see hospitalizations to, to stabilize and start dropping. And then after that, ICUs and et cetera, you know, eventually you would see deaths uh, start to drop as well. Uh, those are sort of the daily metrics that the province puts out. And that's sort of how I am reading them for now. Some 
some cities are also publicly reporting the measurement of uh, COVID virus shed in wastewater, um, including uh, Ottawa, Kingston, and Waterloo region. Uh, those should also give us a good idea of when things start to improve, uh, but uh, those numbers should be read pretty carefully, and also they are only reported out in some cases, uh, weekly or, or once every few days. Uh, so they are less up to date. Um, and, uh, you know, we have, you and I both have said uh, during this this podcast that uh, Omicron is, is generally a less virulent form of uh, COVID. And uh, that is true. But I, I think we should just say, you know, while we're talking about data and, and deaths, um, we should definitely add that deaths really have undeniably increased from COVID in Ontario. Uh, as you and I record this, the seven-day average of deaths uh, has about quadrupled from where it was in mid-December. And last week, uh, two deaths among those, un one under the age of 10, one around the age of four, uh, which was uh, just a new level of tragedy we're unaccustomed to hearing over the past almost two years that we've been into this thing. Okay, let me ask you about this, JMM. Something, uh, well, let's just say it's rather unusual, and it happened on Monday of this week. Three opposition parties represented in the legislature, the NDP, the Liberals, and the Greens, they held a joint, what they called, emergency COVID summit on the hospital situation in Ontario today. They then held a joint news conference afterwards, which is quite rare, again, for the opposition parties to do together. Uh, let's start with this. What, what do you think emerged from that summit that's worth pointing out? You know, there's a very um, a cross-partisan consensus, at least on the opposition side of the benches, um, about what they would like to see uh, moving forward. Uh, you know, one of the uh, main items that uh, they, they very strongly emphasized, and that I think our listeners are going to hear a lot of over the next few weeks, is that they want the legislature to repeal uh, Bill 124. This was the uh, wage restraint law that the government got passed back in 2019. Um, it, it, it caps increases in uh, public sector salaries. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> full disclosure, it applies to uh, us at TVO. Uh, though in, in this case, the, the important point is that it also applies to nurses and other healthcare workers, um, though uh, not doctors whose uh, agreement with the government uh, was signed before the passage of Bill 124. Um, so the, the, the issue is the effect that Bill 124 is having on staffing levels in hospitals. Uh, very strong arguments to be made that... Uh, some nurses have left the profession, uh, at least in part because they haven't seen uh, a raise uh, commensurate with their workload uh, in the last few years. Uh, you know, multiple uh, pu public sector uh, healthcare unions in on the summit, uh, nurses, uh, doctors, uh, healthcare workers, uh, PSWs, uh, you know, a, a surprising lack of partisanship, I would say, um, not, not just uh, amongst the participants who... Um, you know, obviously kept it civil, even though the NDP and the Liberals are still both trying to defeat each other in the next election. Um, but they also, you know, didn't do a lot of sniping at the government, I would say. Uh, you know, for the record, the government was invited to participate in this summit as well. Uh, neither Premier Ford nor any of his uh, ministers attended, as far as we know. Uh, there were numerous tangible recommendations that uh, emerged in the summit. Uh, you, Steve, have written a column about this at tvo.org, so uh, our listeners can go there and read more about uh, what emerged from the summit. Well, one of the reasons I find that these kinds of things so interesting is that over the next five months in the lead up to the election, and you just alluded to this a bit, all those parties 
New Democrats, liberals, greens, they're going to be campaigning as much against themselves, against one another, as they are against the governing Tories in an effort to be seen as the best alternative to the Conservatives. And yet they put the politics of that aside to cooperate on this summit. How do you think it all went? Uh, you know, there seemed to be a, certainly a lot of satisfaction among the uh, the, the, the nonpartisan stakeholders uh, represented on the, the the Zoom call that you and I were uh, watching in on. Uh, they they certainly liked the idea of putting partisanship aside and just you know focusing on uh, what needs to happen to to improve the situation for nearly 15 million Ontarians whose you know public sector health care system is uh, you know really under a lot of strain right now. I do recall uh, Doris Grinspan, who heads up the Registered Nurses of Ontario, uh, saying in the chat on the Zoom, you know, we love it when they put the partisanship crap aside and they just focus on the issues. And you hear that a lot in these things. You know, great, let's get everybody working together. And uh, I think Ontarians appreciate that when, when it's a real crisis, having their politicians come together and uh, try to put the public's interest ahead of what occasionally looks like their own. Now, let me raise another issue that arose while we were on our break, JMM, and that is there was a significant announcement to be made, and the government, they didn't make it themselves. They sent the medical officer of health, Kieran Moore, out to make it by himself at a news conference. No cabinet ministers, no premier joining him for that announcement, just him by himself. What's been the reaction to that? Right. So this was uh, the initial announcement that uh, the reopening of schools was going to be postponed uh, back when they, the government thought this was just going to be a, a few days. And that's a government decision. That is, you know, that is a decision that the premier and cabinet made. Obviously, Dr. Moore advised them in his capacity as chief medical officer of health, but fundamentally it was a cabinet decision. And yet Dr. Moore is the one who was trotted out to make the announcement. And so there was significant criticism uh, about that as a, you know, <laughs> a communication strategy, whatever you want to call it, uh, with the government's critics wondering, you know, why is it that uh, Dr. Moore was sent out by himself to deliver bad news? Uh, but, you know, whenever there is a, a ribbon that needs cutting or a, a, a broadband investment that needs announcing, uh, there is not one but usually multiple cabinet ministers around to make that announcement. Uh, you know, I think it raises fair questions, or at least certainly I, I heard from a lot of people raising the question uh, about whether Dr. Moore is being roped into uh, a more political role and uh, whether this could affect public trust in uh, the judgment uh, that he shows the public. Uh, you know, it is worth adding for all that, that, uh, you know, a few days later, when the government had to change its mind and announce that the, the closure of schools was going to be a bit longer, uh, the premier and, and several ministers were front and center there. As they should be, right? That's a yeah. political decision. And Congratulations, you did the yeah. minimum. <laughs> <laughs> Bingo. All right, let's do an election watch item now. The next uh, grand consultation with the people, as former Premier Bill Davis used to call elections, it's less than five months away now. June the 2nd is the scheduled date. And we have learned that two more progressive conservative members of the legislature will not be standing for re-election. So let's find out why. First, former Environment Minister Jeff Urich, who represents Elgin, Middlesex, London. What's the story there? So Jeff Urich was in cabinet. Uh, you cited him as the former Environment Minister, but he was... Uh shuffled out of that role uh, last summer, and he may simply have assumed that he wouldn't be getting back in. Uh, he is a, a pharmacist from southwestern Ontario. Uh, he's 50. Uh, he has been an MPP for more than 10 years. Uh, you know, he may have just had enough. Um, but, you know, it would also be, I think, 
odd, and I won't try to read his mind here, but it would it would be odd if the cabinet shuffle and the fact that he is, you know, no longer a minister, uh, it would be odd if that had nothing to do with his decision. Right. Now, the other MPP not standing again is Christina Mitis. She's the PC member for Scarborough Center, who I suspect has set a new record for having kids while in office. In this, her one and only term at Queen's Park, she's already had two kids, and she is pregnant with her third now. So congratulations to her for that. But JMM, uh, she will probably be remembered not just for that, but for something else as well. She was the last unvaccinated member of the PC caucus. Uh, We certainly mentioned this when it was uh, in the news the first time, but uh, as she is pregnant, she uh, had decided not to get vaccinated. Uh, She presented uh, a medical exemption to the PC caucus, and that was accepted. Um, But now she has decided that... uh, you know, this is just a strain on her young family. And, and of course, being an MPP is uh, quite stressful. Um, and, uh, you know, I think one of the other things we might be seeing at the risk of uh, speculating a bit, um, <laughs> uh, in the last few months, we have seen uh, a bunch of MPPs, uh, both in the governing party and in the opposition, announce that they won't be running again. And to talk about Yurik again for a moment, I think, you know, one thing that we might be seeing, uh, especially from Tory MPPs who were elected well before the 2018 win, I think for some of them, it just it may have turned out that being in government really wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Like, it's been a really hard almost four years. And uh, even before the pandemic, it, you know, I, I think there were certain people who uh, maybe just turned out they didn't love being in power as much as they'd hoped. <laughs> mm. Well, you know, it's always the case that some people choose not to run again. And whenever that happens... Uh, There are always people like you and me who say, oh, does this show a lack of faith in your thinking that the government can't be reelected? And sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. We've given a couple of examples here of two MPPs uh, for whom that probably is not the case. They've got other personal things happening in their lives that would make them not want to run again. So sometimes... um, Sometimes it's the natural turnover of things that results in these happening, in in these things happening. Uh, Other times there's more going on here. But I guess I'm raising this because if there are many more members of the current government, progressive conservative candidates who opt not to run again, after particularly only one term in some cases, that is going to look a little strange. Well, and uh, like you, I I don't think we're there yet in terms of you know, really sharpening the question about whether uh, uh, the PC caucus has a lot of faith in the next election. But, uh, you know, it's interesting to think about these kinds of departures, right? Um, MPP Midas, uh, you know, is not in cabinet, is not, I think it's fair to say, one of the the um, uh, really high firepower members of, uh, of the caucus, uh, but she holds a, a Toronto seat. And for the Conservatives in particular, every incumbent you have in uh, Toronto and the 905 uh, is is gold, and they're worth their weight in gold. Um, and so the fact that she's leaving and, and leaving that seat open for uh, the Liberals or New Democrats to uh, potentially uh, take back, uh, that's a tough one. And, you know, as for Jeff Urich, you know, I, I strongly suspect the Tories are, are heavily favored, let's put it that way, uh, to, to hang on to his seat. Um, but at the same time, you know, any energy you have to spend holding a seat like Elgin Middlesex London is energy you would rather be spending somewhere else. Absolutely well said. Now, one last thing before we go here, and that is 
Is everybody okay on your end? I think you sent me an email over the break saying that you'd lined up for several hours to get your young daughter vaccinated. How's things going? Uh, I, I did have to line up for a bit. Uh, everything's good here. Um, my wife and I are, are both uh, boosted here now with our third doses. Uh, and last week, yes, I, I, I lined up outside of a pop-up clinic with uh, my six-year-old daughter to get her second shot. Um, if I can just wax paternally here for a moment, just incredibly <laughs> proud of my daughter who in a four-hour wait, half of that in January cold weather was just incredibly well-behaved until until the exact moment the needle went in her arm, and then, and then there were some fireworks. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, I, you know, we mentioned earlier the, the eight-week interval, so I want to just explain a little bit, um, and I, I, I want to be careful how I say this because I should definitely not be giving people medical advice. Um, but, uh, you know, for, for some people in Ontario, depending on where you live, it may, it may be possible to accelerate your child's second dose uh, to, to earlier than eight weeks. Um, I, I know some people have done it as quickly as 21 days. That's the, the minimum allowed by Health Canada. Uh, you can try calling the provincial booking line. I know that um, uh, some of those appointments are being allowed. Your local public health office might be able to do it. Um, it. It may not be possible everywhere, so I want to sort of caution our listeners. But in any case, if you were wondering, hey, McGrath just said that we were still eight, we, we still hadn't done eight weeks yet, and how's this kid getting a second shot? That's why my, my wife and I opted to do it a bit sooner. Um, so yeah, uh, it, it, it is definitely a relief if uh, kids do go back later in January or potentially early February. Uh, you know, I feel a bit more uh, secure because the, the appointment that my daughter had uh, for her second dose wasn't until February. Now she'll be a bit more protected and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just keep doing what we can do. <laughs> Good. How old's your daughter? Uh, six. She's six. Okay. So there's there's fireworks at age six. <laughs> and I have a daughter who's 18, and there's fireworks at age 18. And I can tell you, you ain't seen nothing yet when it comes to fireworks, my friend. She was actually, she calmed down relatively quickly because, um, you know, uh, and this may be useful to other parents in our audience, uh, but uh, immediately after the needle, I just handed her my cell phone and put on YouTube, and she, she calmed right down. <laughs> <laughs> YouTube to the rescue. Well done. You know, there's one other thing I just wanted to add, because I think it's just... Um, you got to seize these moments where the pandemic uh, has little bits of grace to it. Um, the pop-up clinic that I went to was at a Toronto public school and, you know, it went relatively late into a Friday night and um, the school principal was there. Uh, she didn't need to be. Uh, she acknowledged there wasn't like a lot she could do, but she wanted to be there in case anything went wrong, in case there were any hiccups, anything like if a door needed to be unlocked or anything like that. She just wanted to be there. And, you know, um, yeah, I just, I really want to thank her and I want to thank everybody who is doing everything they can and more than they need to, to get us through this. That is great. And so well said, because there are a lot of people who are going above and beyond the call of duty during this pandemic. And you just gave a great example of one of them. So well done. Okay. We always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week. And we'll have that immediately after we ask you, as we always do, to give us a rating on Apple podcasts. We do love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. Uh, and we also want to remind you that to read our weekly On Poly newsletter, uh, which drops every Tuesday morning, same as the podcast. Uh, you can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash newsletter. 
Here now, my quote of the week, and we're going to go back to just before New Year's when the government was debating whether to close down the schools again. Here is liberal leader Stephen Del Duca on how he would handle the current situation and his advice for Premier Ford. Get the best advice. If you have to delay the reopening of schools, do it based on that best advice. But in the time that you are given, while those schools remain closed to in-person learning, make the investments and show the leadership to make sure we don't end up here again, to make sure that our kids are set up for success, to make sure that our frontline education workers are safe. These are the things that are that are the responsibility of a premier, and they're things that Doug Ford has consistently deserved to get a failing grade for. Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca, who has two school-aged daughters who are no doubt not thrilled at the likelihood of yet another week of online learning. My quote of the week comes from the province's chief medical officer of health, Dr. Kieran Moore, uh, who started his press conference last week with a note of contrition. I want to begin by recognizing how challenging, frustrating, and disappointing it is for many Ontarians that we have had to reimpose various public health measures and ask that our students and educators return to online learning. These decisions were not taken lightly, and I am truly sorry that we are asking you once again to make these tremendous sacrifices. That's Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health addressing the province's parents and others last week. And that is this week's episode of the On Poly Podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, let's say it for the first time in 2022, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative, that is, if you can get a test. Stay safe, Steve. Steve.